Okay, good evening and welcome back to part two of an overview of L'Chodedi, which is a mimer from the Lubavitcher Rebbe regarding marriage. We started this uh, a month ago, actually, on Yud Dalad Kislev, the 14th day of the month of Kislev, which is the anniversary of the wedding of the Rebbe and Rebetzin. And on, the, on that date, the date of their wedding, the Rebbe's father-in-law, the Rebetzin's father, the Friedrich Rebbe, said this uh, discourse, L'chad And uh, the Rebbe then later said his own version or elaboration or explanation of the Mimer. And these two Maimorim, the Friedrich Rebbe's and the Rebbe's L'chad became sort of manuals, spiritual manuals for the Jewish marriage. So in part one, we discussed some of the basic ideas, and I gave an entire overview of the flow of the Mimer chapter by chapter, which we will not uh, do again here tonight. Uh, and we also spoke about some of the, the practical application, what those spiritual paradigms from the Mimer look like when applied into an actual relationship of a man and a woman living under one roof, trying to uh, raise a family and, and have a relationship and, and build a home. Um, we can't do everything all at once. There's a, sometimes you reach cognitive overload and you just uh, you have to you have you have to take a break. Um, so as soon as we finished, I knew that we needed a part two. Um, if I can be personal for a moment. Uh, when mikvah.org, who are my partners for this evening's project, uh, I want to just mention mikvah.org, uh, does incredible work educating the public regarding Taras HaMishpacha, regarding the, the foundation, the spiritual foundation of the Jewish home. And uh, they approached me about doing this event one month ago. And uh, the reason that I didn't want to do it is I was feeling overwhelmed because my daughter was getting married the first, the second night of Hanukkah, first day of Hanukkah, second night of Hanukkah. Uh, and I was like, too much. But then I was, then I rethought it and I said, what could be a better way of preparing, at least for me as the father of the bride, to prepare for a wedding uh, than to teach a class about L'chadaydi? Uh, the added benefit was they told me that it should be from a bride's point of view. So we're doing, officially, this is the woman's point of view, and I'm going to speak a little bit more about that as the evening goes on, that this is a woman's point of view, and I'm going to speak about the fact that, yes, there are, with all apologies to egalitarianism, there are different approaches for men and for women how to understand and apply this mimer. But they told me to do a bride's point of view. I said, well, that's perfect because I'm the father of the bride, so uh, that was sort of my preparation. And I do believe uh, that my daughter... Um, listened to it, and I, I, I don't believe I know that she did. She, she's a good girl. She sent me a picture of her uh, on the car. How it shows. I was gonna say the car radio. They're not called radios. I don't know what do they call them. She showed me a picture of her dashboard with the the podcast playing on it. So mission accomplished. Okay. At, at any rate, and I want to dedicate also uh, last month's year as well as tonight's year to uh to Moshe and Tybel David, the uh, new couple. May they uh 
have many healthy, happy years together, and build a home, an eternal edifice, an everlasting edifice built upon the uh, teachings of Hasidus. Um, so tonight is part two. Oh, so at, at any rate, so I knew that after I finished part one, I was like, you know what, that's, there's like an hour, there's another hour of material that we need to get into. <clears throat> um, I said, uh, you know what, after, after the chasana, we'll, we'll do it. So here we are, it's a month later, and I want to do part two. And part two is, uh, I want to get into the intimate relationship the physical relationship um that that real challenging part of not just marriage but of of the human condition uh dealing with the fact that we have these drives and we're trying to to elevate and to direct and to channel those drives and it it can be a veritable minefield to navigate but it's not something we can afford uh, to avoid. We have to learn how to navigate it. And in fact, I would even say, and maybe this is even the thesis for tonight's class, is that the entire purpose of the creation of the physical world is only fulfilled through the healthy physical bond between a husband and a wife. Yeah, I'm comfortable with that statement, yes. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Um, I don't want to rehash everything we spoke about in the last class. And if you need a refresher, that's why we have these things recorded. You can go back and rewatch part one. I will, however, do a quick recap of some concepts that are going to be incredibly important for understanding tonight's topic and and why intimacy really is different for men and women. Is that a truism? Is that like a real platitude? <laughs> intimacy is different for men and for women, but <laughs> I guess it needs to be stated. Okay. Um, so just to recap some of the main ideas from last month when we did part one, masculinity and femininity in their spiritual paradigms are giver and recipient, mashpia and mekabel. Those are the Hebrew terms. However, as we explained, giver and recipient is a lot deeper than first meets the eye because um, the term recipient, if you, if you don't look into it deeply, it, it connotes passivity. And, and, and in fact, that's one of the big misunderstandings of femininity is that it's passive somehow, um, at best reactive to uh, masculinity, following the lead of masculinity uh, and having real no voice or agency. Uh, that's one of the big misunderstandings of femininity uh, as a recipient. And we explained that a recipient is far from passive. A recipient is is incredibly active and in fact the 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 recipient is the one who really catalyzes the entire exchange and makes it productive and and we gave a lot of examples of that how how a, a true recipient is actually a giver um 
for instance, and and we'll we'll do this quickly, but uh, Shabbos and the work days. On on one hand, Shabbos seems to be completely receptive from the work days. Uh, like I say, just say one who does not toil on erev Shabbos will have nothing to eat on Shabbos. So Shabbos cannot cook; she can't perform any labors. Labors are prohibited if you didn't provide the cooking, the cleaning, the preparing on the six work days. Uh, going out and working and making money in order to buy the food and then come cook the food and prepare the food. If you didn't do all that on the six work days, then Shabbos can't provide that for herself. So from that uh, perspective, it looks like Shabbos is so passive. Nabach, she can't even make a kugel for herself. But then if you play out the rest of the exchange and you see, well, what happens when Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, give kugel to Shabbos, she takes that kugel and she turns it into spirituality. She turns it into warmth and meaning and and a place to come home to and a place to, to regenerate and to have a reason to go back out into another six work days in the world. So, yeah, she received from them, but then what she ends up giving birth to, quite literally, is incomparably greater than what she received. She received some uh, some kugel, and she turned it into a meaning and a purpose for going out into another week in the world. So that that's 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 one example. Or you can you could look at another example. That that's that's a lofty example. T- time, the relationship between different temporal energies. But you could look at it a really uh, very simple uh, physical example like like reproduction, whether that's uh, whether that's a plant, let's talk about plants because that's a little little less triggering. You know <laughs> if you don't put the seed in the soil, nothing's gonna grow. So the seed is masculine, the soil is feminine. So it looks like the soil is just sitting there waiting, doing nothing, twiddling her thumbs for the seed to come along and, and to make something interesting happen, right? Okay, that's half of the story. But then you play out the story and you realize that it's only in the soil that the unlimited potential of the seed becomes unleashed. Anyone can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. There are infinite apples in the seed, but that only becomes unleashed and revealed through the soil. So you got to play out the whole story. Yeah, the soil was waiting for the seed to be planted in it, but after the soil received the seed, it upgrades what it got and it turns it into generations of further trees with fruit, with trees with fruit, with trees with fruit. The infinity becomes revealed through her. Uh, and then obviously uh, you know, you talk about human reproduction, the, the same paradigm there that the gestation of the of the child takes place within the mother's womb. So she receives something that Hazal referred to as a tipasrucha, which it's not a compliment. Just <laughs> by the way, uh, why did why did Hazal use that uh, that term? How do you translate that? A fetid drop. It's to humble you. It's very humbling. Where do you come from? A fetid drop. It's to humble you. It's not. It's not a. It's not a uh, something to brag about. Okay. So, in other words, a tipa srucha, fetid drop. That's like a real uh, underwhelming type of thing. And then the mommy turns that into a whole baby with ramach evarim v'shesagidin and a personality and a smile. So that that's what I call an infinite upgrade. At any rate, oh, 
And let's use a metaphor that hopefully is applicable right here and now, teacher and student. Teacher and student. So on one hand, the student's just waiting for the class to begin. Teacher doesn't get there, right? If the teacher's 30 minutes late, everybody gets to leave. What's the urban myth? You can Google it. Okay. But at any rate, teacher and student. So on one hand, it's like students just waiting for the teacher to talk. The students don't know anything. The teacher knows. If, if the students knew, the students would teach. But the teacher's the one who knows. So the teacher teaches. Yeah, that's that's one half of the story. The other half of the story is mitalmida yesemakulam. That the, the teacher ultimately realizes that he learned more from his students than anyone else. This is, this is the saying of our sages. I learn much from my teachers, even more from my colleagues, but from my students most of all. And there are so many examples of, of this, or, or more than the, the, the balabas does for the ani, the ani does for the balabas, right? More than the, 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 the rich man does for the pauper, the pauper does for the, for the rich man. The, pauper gave the, 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 the rich man gave the pauper a piece of bread. The pauper gave the rich man a mitzvah. You know, what lasts longer, a piece of bread or a mitzvah? A mitzvah is eternal. So all of these real mashpia makabal relationships, it's not really giver and recipient the way that we take giver and recipient to mean. It's, it's a giver and an even bigger giver. This is what we said last month. And then we ask the question, which is, well, if, if that's the case, if Mashpi and Makabal is not just giver and recipient, but really it's a giver and an even bigger giver, well, then the man is left asking, well, what, what, what's my purpose? Or perhaps since tonight is I'm speaking to uh, women, a woman might ask about men, like, well, what do you need them for? What do you need them for? Um. If ultimately a woman is an even bigger giver than a man, if femininity gives more than masculinity gives to her, so then what do you need? What do you need the the small giver for if you already got the bigger giver? And of course, the answer is that the woman is the bigger giver, but the man gives first. She may give more back. Then she got, but she gives back. Meaning to say there were raw materials provided for her to work with. And that's what we spoke about. That really, mashpia, when we say masculinity as a mashpia, we don't really mean that he's a giver, because if you say that uh, that masculinity is a, is a mashpia and that means he's a giver, it's a little bit funny because how is that what characterizes him when she's also a giver and she's an even bigger giver in the end? So really, it's more helpful probably to define masculinity and mashpia as initiator. Initiator. He initiates. And then what she does is she develops. She develops what he initiated and turns it into something greater. And together, they each need each other for the unique, indispensable role that, that the other one performs. Okay? So that was basically what we spoke about in part one. Now, how does this all apply to the personal, intimate relationship between 
husband and wife. So I want to repeat at the risk of making myself uh, boring. Uh, I want to repeat that I'm speaking to women. I have a video called Speaking to Men About Marriage. I actually have a couple different versions of that video. One of them is speaking to Bahram, speaking to young single men before marriage, preparing them for marriage. I have another one speaking to men who are already married, speaking to them about marriage. And uh, we can provide links down below. We'll do that. We'll uh, provide links to that for any men who may be watching. So you should switch to those videos because those were made for men. And when I gave my talk to men, I said very clearly, I don't want any women listening to this. It's not healthy. It's not going to help your marriage. And the reason is I'm a very strong believer that because men and women have different and distinct roles, it's not necessarily so productive for each one to be really familiar and acquainted with the obligations of the other. To the contrary, that can often create a lot of resentments, um, and I don't want that, God forbid, anything that I'm teaching tonight should be weaponized, and I'm not accusing anyone of doing this maliciously, but what I am saying is when you learn an exciting new idea and it sounds so true and it sounds so compelling and you say, wow, I want to see that in my life, but it's not something that you're supposed to do. It's something your spouse is supposed to do. So all of your inspiration and excitement actually comes out as pressure on your spouse. And, and that wouldn't bring peace between husband and wife. And I say every single morning of my life in Morning Blessings that one of the mitzvahs that has no limit is uh, bringing peace between a husband and a wife. So I don't want to bring the opposite of peace. So I want to explain something. There are some things that I say to men, and trust me, ladies, I don't let them off the hook. Please believe me. I'm not easy on the men. Um, I'll tell you, I have a... Chavrusa in Chassidus, probably my my favorite Chavrusa, um, and she's my wife, and she's one of the deepest, smartest people I know in period in in, in my life, and she actually said to me after last month's shear that you might have said some stuff to the women that implies that the men really don't have any responsibility to step up and that they're just entitled to be babies. And I said, oh, I sure hope I didn't imply that. But if I did, I'll, I can explain to you why that might have come off that way. It's because I was speaking to the women and I was trying to be extra careful not to let the women know too much of what's demanded from, from the men. Um, so that's the risk. <sighs> so it's a real fine line and it's a little bit intimidating because I'm really afraid that if I don't tell the women everything that I tell the men, the women might think that the men are absolved of any hard work. But if I do tell the women what I really demand from the men, I'm pretty certain that 
will not be healthy. So I'm going to err on the side of telling you less about what I tell the men as opposed to telling you more of what I tell the men. I hope that makes sense. <sighs> Meaning literally I hope that what I just said makes sense. Like you could actually follow what I said. Uh, and then after it makes sense, I hope that you agree <laughs> with, <laughs> with the, the reasoning. Um, but if, even if you don't agree with it, I just hope that you followed why it makes sense to me. So let me tread very lightly, very, very, very lightly. Um, when I speak to men about intimacy, um, one of the things I often ask them is, um, well, I'm speaking specifically now about people who come from a religious Jewish background. Um, I will often ask them, what do you do with the fact that there's this aspect of your life, of your humanity, that you've been intentionally suppressing to the best of your ability since puberty? And the reason is because you were told that this is to engage in it is a very uh, spiritually damaging thing. And then all of a sudden, one day, you're told, oh, and now here, this thing that you were avoiding because it's a, it's a demon, uh, this thing you're going to share with the most important person in your life. It's a little bit of a whiplash effect. So how does a man make sense of that? And here's what I tell the men, a little bit of what I tell them, just enough for you to understand what I'm going to tell you, uh, the women. I tell the men like this, a man is a mashpia. Okay. Mashpia is, like we said, an initiator or a provider, one who gives building blocks or raw materials to a macabre to build something more with. Okay. So here's the thing. When a man, let's say, uh, I'm sure you're aware such things exist because Shulchan Aruch speaks about being careful not to do this. Uh, when a man glances and looks at a woman, so that's that's prohibited. Um, but what's especially egregious about it? We know it's not allowed, but why is it so damaging? Or what what makes it uniquely damaging? And the answer is that when he's looking and receiving pleasure by what he looks at, Right there, you know it's dysfunctional because he's receiving. He's meant to be a giver, and now he's taking. He has inverted Seder Ishtalshlis, and he, who is supposed to be a mashpia, is being mekabel. He is taking pleasure 
from the place where he's supposed to be a giver. So everything becomes inverted. And by definition, when he is looking and enjoying, whether he's looking at people or at pixels, that is not a real relationship. That's not a, 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 that's not a context within which he's able to give or provide anything to anyone else. He's purely taking, and therefore it's the taking that makes it so demeaning for the man. He made himself a taker. Okay, you following? So then I proceed to explain to the men. That the truth is they don't need to get any whiplash when they get married and wonder how come this thing was so terrible yesterday and now they're telling me it's Kedusha Kedoshim today, like does not compute. <clears throat> how does one thing completely change categories? Because I'll tell you the truth, nothing changed categories. Nothing changed categories. What was demeaning and spiritually damaging when you were a bacher is still demeaning and spiritually damaging to yourself when you're married. And that is what was what was demeaning and spiritually damaging to a bacher is <clears throat> being a taker. And that continues to be demeaning and spiritually damaging to a younger man, to a married man. If he will simply use his wife as his access point to his supply of taking pleasure, then that will be unfulfilling for both of them and spiritually damaging. However, if through his marriage he can step up and be a provider to his wife who provides to her on all levels, whether that means emotionally or companionship or social compatibility or sharing values or bringing home a paycheck or building a home or, or, or fathering her children, all these levels of providing, and yes, also providing the mitzvah of oina. The mitzvah of oina is a mitzvah that a man has to not withhold physical intimacy from his wife. So if he will provide her, he has a mitzvah, it's, the mitzvah's on him to not withhold physical intimacy from his wife. And if he provides her with that, then he's a mashbia. Then, rather than it being demeaning, it is, it is uh, ennobling. It makes somebody, it makes them noble. It makes them uplifted. It, it, it gives them greater dignity, greater self-respect because they're providing something. So the key, and, and, and of course, a single man doesn't have a kosher outlet where he can be a provider. He cannot take his masculine energy um, and, and channel it into any form of intimacy because he doesn't, there's no uh, mikabal for that energy. So anywhere he puts it is really just an act of, of taking. But 
what changed on the wedding night was not that all of a sudden, oh, it's a free-for-all, now you get to take. No, it was always damaging to take. The problem was when you were a bacher, the only thing you could do was take. Now that you're married, you have, you have an opportunity to give. To give intimacy. What's the difference between lust and love? Difference between lust and love? Lust takes, love gives. Love gives. Love ahava is, is the word have, to give. Love gives. So when a man is able to be a giver, a provider of intimacy, as is his duty, alpitoida, written in the ksuba, then it's the opposite of, of degrading. It is absolutely uplifting, and it's the, really the, the most noble job that uh, the Jewish husband has is to, to bond with his wife in that way. That's what I tell the men. Some of what I tell them. I tell them much, much more. But like I said, I don't want to tell you too much because it's not your business. No disrespect. Okay. I needed you to know that because I want to explain something to you. And please trust me when I tell you that I am very, very demanding of the men. And if anything, of all of the rabbis who speak in this uh, subject, I think I get the most complaints from men saying that my standard of... Um, masculine sexual identity is way too lofty, way too idealistic, uh, not, not real for, for our day and age. And I stand by my guns and I say that men can aspire to being holy and noble and selfless in their intimate lives. Okay. So please, for the record, please know I do not let the men off easy at all, at all. But now I want to speak to the women. <sighs> You're married now. Mazel tov. You have a husband. Your husband is the Meshpia. You are the Meqabal. He's there to provide you with all types of things. Like I mentioned before, every level, socially, emotionally, spiritually, religiously, and yes, physically. Physically, he's there to provide for you. Here's the thing. Giving without a willing recipient is not giving, it's invasion. It's violation. And yes, when I speak to the men, I stress this again and again and again, that their entire job is to be the of the macabre. And that means, I'm telling you again, way too much of what I tell the men, but that preparations for intimacy begin days beforehand with a cup of tea and with holding the door open for her 
and with a smile and saying, how's your day? Those things are all a necessary prelude, a warm-up to going into the Holy of Holies. But I want to speak to the women now and explain that there's something uh, unique about the female role in intimacy that I don't know if men can even relate to. Uh, how am I going to speak about it if I'm a man? Uh, I can understand it conceptually. I don't know that I directly relate to it. I understand it conceptually. Where do I know it from? From Chassidus. Basically, something that might be considered crass for a man could be considered extremely spiritual for a woman. His desire for intimacy is, let's just put it this way, um, a man's desire for intimacy is probably, if men would be honest with you, the central challenge in their spiritual lives. To the extent there's a, I heard in the name of the Rebbe Marash, he said that if you would be Masadas and Apikoiris, you become Ois Apikoiris. <laughs> if you made the heretic into a eunuch, he would cease being heretical. In other words, it's his confusion about those desires that brings him to all types of convoluted rationalizations, okay? For a woman, the desire for intimacy doesn't bring that danger. And I would probably also say that the purpose of marriage is so that a man can connect to his own femininity through his wife and find the sacredness of the desire for intimacy, which he cannot do on his own. He cannot do on his own. Men and women are different. Men are Zoh, women are Malchus. We didn't even speak about that yet. Mashpia and Makabal, we spoke about. And I gave you different examples, Shabbos in the workday, uh, teacher and student, uh, giver and recipient, uh, the rich man and the pauper, and the seed and the soil. Those are all Zon Malchus, sun and moon. Uh, and I mentioned that one, but throw it in for good measure. Um, in Atzilos, in the world of archetypes, Mashbi and Mechabal are Zon Malchus, Zon is the six building blocks of energy, and Malchus is the divine womb, so to speak, within which those energies gestate and are otherized and turned into creation. 
Instead of being creator, they get turned into creation. So she, Malchus, is that which turns creator into creation. She's a mother. That's, that's what she does. She makes babies. She makes worlds. She makes created beings. So here's the thing. The role of Malchus is to recognize the godliness within that which is lower, that which is normally um, thought of as unholy, to find the godly in, which, in that which is normally considered unholy. In other words, when we do mitzvahs with physical objects, with our physical bodies, exerting physical energy, and we make the physical world a holier place, and we make a dirabatachtainim, a dwelling place in the lower realms. So that's malchus. That's the idea of taking things that are mundane and making them godly, making them a place for godliness to settle and be revealed. That's the concept of building the physical base of Mikdash when it stood in Yerushalayim and will stand again very soon when Mashiach comes. That's the idea of the Avedis Habirurim, of refining the, the physical world through our physical mitzvahs. And that's all a function of Malchus. Malchus is the one that gets down into the world and refines that stuff that is, uh, at least at first glance, is, is not holy. Call it klipas noiga, like it says in Tanya. Um, the intermediate or the uh, neutral husk. But the point is that I want you to understand here that Malchus is able to take stuff that's not overtly holy and make it holy. Right? Um, I think I spoke about it last month. Yankiv Avinu, and it's this week's parsha, by the way, Vayichi, Yankiv Avinu needed to be buried in Chevron, in the holiest, the second holiest city in the world, in a holy site, the Marasamachpela. Rachel Imenu got buried on the side of the road, not in a holy place. What happened? By her being being buried in a non-holy place, she turned it into a holy place where so many tefillos, so many tears, so many heartfelt cries for so many millennia have been have gone up to heaven from that spot where Mama Rachel was buried. It was a normal place. She made it extraordinary. That's Malchus. That's Malchus. So femininity can take that which is not holy and make it godly. Femininity can elevate the desire for physical intimacy in a way that masculinity on its own cannot, and I stress again, on its own cannot. And certainly when masculinity exploits femininity and uses femininity as an object of pleasure, then that is the exact opposite of, of elevating the human desire for intimacy. But when femininity desires physical intimacy, 
And masculinity there, therefore is able to meet that need, to fulfill that desire, to provide her something that she has signaled she wants, then the entire act and everything that goes into it becomes profoundly holy. So it's important for her to desire it. And that's why I get nervous sometimes when women listen to classes about marriage and they hear messages that are really important for men to hear. Messages like, don't get so fixated, don't be so, uh, you know, don't perseverate on the, on the physicality and, you know, be a little bit more idle, be a little bit more refined. And uh, that kind of talk is probably important for men in order to just cool their jets and get a more sober perspective. But I don't think it's appropriate to tell women to have an ambivalent attitude towards intimacy and to act as if it's not something they're interested in. To the contrary, it's something they should be very interested in. They can handle it. I'm speaking to women. You can handle it. I'll tell you a story. Um, when they were building the Mishkan, a physical sanctuary for God's presence in the, in the wilderness, there was a special donation. There were many other donations, the gold, the silver, the copper, and everything else. And all of that is accounted for. Moshe Rabbeinu did a, an accounting, Parshas Pekude. He did his audit, his internal audit. There's a, there's a bunch of uh, copper that was not accounted for there. It was a, a special gift. It was given on the side, a special donation. And um, we're told that it, it, it was a donation brought by the women, the Maras Hatsoives, the, the mirrors. They had copper mirrors that they brought out of Mitzrayim, and they donated these mirrors. And uh, in the end, they weren't used for the regular building materials. They were specifically used for one project. They were used for the, uh, the kier, the wash basin. What's interesting is when the women brought these mirrors, Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to reject them. He did not think it was appropriate to use these mirrors in God's holy house. Okay, why not? What was the problem with the mirrors that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to accept them? So as I mentioned, these were the mirrors the women brought out of Mitzrayim. Okay, what were they doing with mirrors in Mitzrayim? I'm going to tell you very clearly. When they were in Mitzrayim and the men were completely broken through their, the indignity of their servitude. The men had zero desire for marital intimacy. And the women understood that this was a crisis, that there would be no continuity to the Jewish people if the Jewish families would break down. 
And the women understood it was their obligation to, and God didn't tell them to do this. They figured this out with their women's intuition that they needed to seduce their husbands. They needed to entice their husbands to desire physical intimacy. So they used these mirrors and they used them in a very clever way. It wasn't just they looked in the mirror to get themselves looking pretty before their husband came home from a day of backbreaking labor. There was a clever little uh, flirtatious uh, ritual that they would engage in when their husbands would come home and have zero desire for intimacy. The woman who would already be as uh, pretty as she could make herself, she'd already done that, that work before he came home, she'd take her husband over to the mirror and they would both look into the mirror together. And she would say, look at, look at that. Look, that's, you know, it's like you take a selfie picture of, oh, look at us here, husband and wife. And uh, then she would say this, like this cute line. She would say, oh, look how much prettier I am than you. I'm so much prettier than you. And, <laughs> you know, I guess in uh, biblical Egypt, that was a, was a pretty exciting uh, line. And because it worked, it worked. And uh, because of this tactic, there were legions of Jewish babies that were given birth to. That's what Marasat Tsoivais, there's also Tsivais, like the, the legions, Tsivas Hashem. Any, anyways, the women wanted to donate these mirrors, and uh, Moshe Rabbeinu knew exactly where they came from. He understood their history, and he rejected it. He said, uh, not appropriate. You uh, did whatever you had to do in Egypt, but we're building a, a mishkan right now. That's a house for Hashem. We're not going to incorporate these, uh, these mirrors. And Hashem had to intervene. And Hashem actually told Meish Rabbeinu, accept them. These are more precious to me than any of the other donations. He called them Chaviven Olai Al Hakoil. These are more precious to me, these are more dear to me than any of the other donations. So it's an interesting story. And uh, it's a medrash, but uh, <clears throat> my understanding of it is from the Rebbe's Lakuti Sichas, Chelek Vav, Sicha and Parshas Kisisa. And over there, it, it, it explains it a little bit more in depth, um, this whole idea. I should also mention, as long as I'm mentioning sources, um, in the Rebbe's Rashimais, there is a uh, an explanation as well in Rishimus Chaveres Kufches 108. It speaks about uh, the Marasat Tzayves. The idea is that there's a perspective that looks at the female capacity to elevate the desire for 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 physical intimacy. And 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 is uncomfortable with it, um, and and God forbid, I'm not I'm not implying, I don't want to say things that imply that Meishar Rabbeinu, God forbid, was a prude. That's not the explanation. 
The Rebbe explains it very clearly. Meisha Rabbeinu was a spaklaria hamiira. There's a spaklaria hamiira. There's a spaklaria she'ena miira. There's a there's a these are Aramaic terms, but it means there's a lens that is lucid, that is transparent. So what do you call that? It's like a magnifying glass or a telescope. And then there's a a lens that is opaque that it you can't see through it. Ah, but then what do you use it for? It's reflective. You you it's a mirror. And they serve different functions. They serve different purposes. So Meshur in, in, in keeping with his role as the one who saw God through the lucid lens, Meshur was the one, remember, who saw divinity without any buffer. So he wanted the Mishkan to be like that. He wanted that you should just have direct, revealed godliness. So to him, the idea that you were using physical materials was already low enough. Like, okay, it has to be a dirbetachtainim, it has to be in the, in the lower realms. Fine, we're using physical materials. Isn't that low enough? That's low enough. And yet, Hashem said, no, I want you to go lower. I don't want the transparent glass. I want the opaque glass that turns into a mirror. With the mirror, you can see behind you. Behind you means all of the stuff that we would normally discard, or maybe even the stuff that we're trying to outrun. And with the mirror, you can actually actually recapture it retroactively. And that's what teshuva is also, by the way. This is the same dynamic as teshuva, is to recapture retroactively the things that we would have put behind us and left in the past and to put them into the present, to look at them and to realize they have a purpose right now. So the women understood that in order for... Hashem to have a dira b'tachtoinim. It's not tachtoinim enough just to have physical materials. There has to be some aspect of the desire for physical intimacy incorporated into the Mishkan, or it's not a dira b'tachtoinim. How can you call it a dira b'tachtoinim if it doesn't speak to this aspect of the human experience? How can you say that you're explaining this in a relevant way if you don't address human sexuality. I mean, it doesn't have to be your clickbait title, and that wouldn't be Adel, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the right way to, to, to teach anyways. It's not principled, and it's not effective. But ultimately, at some point, and you see, I didn't do it in part one. I only did it in part two. If we're not going to talk about these things, then it's not a dira b'tachtenim, it's a dira b'elyenim. You're leaving it abstract and, and, and ethereal and impractical, okay? But malchus is down to earth. Malchus is, we got to use this and we got to make it relevant or we got to expose its relevancy. So the women... Being an embodiment of Malchus, they understood that the Mishkan has to incorporate not only the tachtainim of physical building materials, but the tachtainim of human sexuality. It has to be part of the Mishkan. And, and Meishu Rabbeinu, he was doing his job. He had a different perspective. The way that Eb explains it, Meishu Rabbeinu wanted a dirab tachtainim the way dirab tachtainim was kedemachat. <laughs> Remember, before the sin of the tree of knowledge, so the Shechina was down here already. We learned Basilagani, right? That the, the, the main Shechina was here in the beginning. So Meshur Rabbeinu said, let's just reinstate that. Let's have that. Meaning it'll, it'll be physical, 
the Dira will be physical, just like when Adam and Eve, before they sinned, the Shekhinah was in the physical world. Okay, so we'll have a Mishkan, we'll bring the Shekhinah into the physical world, just like that, before they sinned, because before they sinned, there was no Yetzirah. The Nachash was an external agent that hadn't yet been imported into the human psyche. So there was no, there was no Yetzirah yet. So we'll do it like that. And it'll, we'll basically get back to how things were before the sin. And Hashem was like, no, actually, I don't want a zero-sum game. I want to come out ahead of where we were. I want to dip down low to come back up high. Now that people do have a Yetzirah, and they do have the capacity to seek self-indulgence, I want to incorporate that into my Dira B'tachtenu. So these women have it right. They did it in Egypt when they used their seductive charms to do the biggest mitzvah of all and perpetuate the Jewish people. They're doing it again by taking those same mirrors and incorporating them into the Mishkan. And I want those those, uh, mirrors in the Mishkan, not in spite of what they represent based on their history, but specifically because of what they represent based on their history. So you want to build a dira in the world or in microcosm in your Jewish home. Part of that, or maybe even I could say uh, the foundation of that is the feminine appreciation for the desire for physical intimacy. And not just the act of physical intimacy as a necessary evil or something that's done perfunctorily, but the desire for it and the art of it. And this is not necessarily something that men can understand. And and I don't think it's something that I would necessarily teach to men, except maybe in a very cursorial fashion, I would explain how their wives simply have a different relationship to this aspect of life than they do. But I, I, I want to explain, you know, I said that a man has a mitzvah, has a mitzvah to provide intimacy for his wife. The truth is, I should be more accurate. Um, and I think I said it the first time, but I, let me slow down and unpack it. I think I said it correctly. We'll play back the tapes. He has a mitzvah not to withhold intimacy from his wife. I think I said those words. Um, What does that mean? He has a mitzvah not to withhold intimacy from his wife. Leisigre is a leisase. The mitzvah that a man has, the conjugal rights that a a woman uh, is entitled to, according to Torah, is a prohibition upon the man. He doesn't have a positive commandment to provide intimacy. He has a negative commandment not to withhold intimacy. Okay. So is he being over every moment that he's not providing intimacy? That wouldn't make any sense. So we have to understand this mitzvah. What does it mean he's not allowed to withhold it? He's not allowed to withhold it means 
He's not allowed to not give her what she wants when she wants it. Now, there are some limitations where he gets to, if she's too demanding, then he can say, based on his job, and this is discussed in, in the Gemara, uh, that uh, I'm only, uh, I, I can only be expected to do so much, I can only do so often, okay? But it's very interesting. Because most couples you, you speak to today, you, don't, you never hear that Gemara being invoked. Rarely do you hear a man say, you know, the Gemara says that I only need to do this once a week and she's trying to make me do it more often. That's, that's rarely the problems that we hear nowadays. I'm just being frank with you. Okay. But at any rate, the point is, his mitzvah is to not deny her when she wants it. But that's the whole point, when she wants it. So the whole thing becomes a mitzvah because she wants it. The entire mitzvah, in other words, the nesinus kayach, that which makes it godly, is predicated on a scenario where she wants. He only has a mitzvah. When she wants it, then he's obligated to not withhold it. So... For a man, the desire for intimacy can be a very confusing thing and a very difficult thing to, to harness and to properly channel. But for a woman, that is what makes the mitzvah possible. When she wants the connection, and then he has to provide it for her. So that's why I just want to say again, I would... It would make me very unhappy to think that women were internalizing messages about self-control and self-respect that maybe men need to hear. Uh, but then women would take that and, and somehow think that they were doing something pious by trying to play down that aspect of their humanity. And, and, and to the contrary... The reality is that it's rather pious for a woman to play that up. Now, obviously, that means in a, in a manner of tznius, in a refined way, in a modest way, not in a way that other people, chas v'shalom, would pick up on. I'm not talking about a woman being extroverted and advertising to the world what her intentions are with her husband. That would be absolutely disgraceful. But I mean, in the privacy of their relationship, it's her holy opportunity, her holy ability that he doesn't have, she has, to create an opportunity for a mitzvah through being in touch with her desire. And rather than fearing it and saying, oh, no, this could interfere with spirituality. Maybe this isn't such a nice thing. No, to the contrary. Bring those mirrors to the Mishkan. The Mishkan needs your mirrors. It's not a dwelling place in the lower realms. The Shechina hasn't fully come down and settled down and integrated into the physical world until there is the incorporation of 
physical intimacy into the home. So it's not enough that the dirabtachtenim of the Jewish home is that you have a physical house with physical furniture and you're having to pay bills and you have to have a job and make money. That's part of dirabtachtenim, but it's not low enough. You got to go lower. Lower means that aspect of human desire that does cause problems and is dangerous if it's not handled properly. But when femininity is in touch with that desire in the context of marriage and then brings masculinity into that as a real giver, as one who can provide and fulfill her desire, now we have a dirabtachtein. Now Hashem can come home. It's, it's counterintuitive, I understand. That's why in the Sicha, the Rebbe even points out this irony. He says, what did they turn the copper mirrors into? The wash basin. The wash basin was where the Kehanim, every morning before they would start the Aveda, they would have to wash their hands and feet to prepare themselves for the Aveda. They're, they're leaving the mundane world, they're entering the holy world, and they got to wash off the mundane. So the, the wash basin, the kier, was to wash off the mundane and to be ready for, for holiness. So hold on a second. Washing off the mundane? Washing off that which is not overtly holy? The mirrors were made out of something that is the embodiment of that which is not overtly holy. Physical intimacy, that's, that's, that's a necessary function. And then what we do, is, I'm saying what people believe, is that, we, that as religious people, we try to find ways to sublimate it, to channel it, to, to give it parameters within which uh, at, at least it well, won't do harm, at least uh, we, can, we, we can use it. And, and we're saying, no, 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 no. This is not something, this is not the demon this is not the, the two-headed monster that we're battling. Now, to clarify, masculinity that is embroiled in an addictive cycle of being a taker from that taiva, that is the demon and the two-headed monster. And, and that's a whole other discussion, how to deal with that and how to help a bacher get through that shame and, 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 to, and to be able to, to, find, to find his dignity again. That's another discussion for another time. It's an absolutely vital discussion that has to be had. But let's stay focused on the point for, for tonight, which is it's not like, oh, well, there's this thing and it's just a, it's a human thing and you have to deal with it and you, you can't have everyone be celibate. So you got to give it an outlet. Okay, so marriage is the way that we deal with it. That's not what we're saying. No, no, no. We're saying that not only does it have a place, but you want to rinse off the mundane. You want to cleanse yourself of all the non-holy stuff. How do you do that? <laughs> with the wash basin. The wash basin that's made out of the mirrors that the women use to entice their husband's physical desire. 
So these these mirrors are actually it's it's such an irony. They actually cleanse you from the non-holy. You follow what I'm saying? They cleanse you from the non-holy. When you have a secular view of life and of marriage, how do you cleanse that secular view and allow yourself to be receptive to a godly view of life and a godly view of marriage? Through fulfilling the feminine desire for intimacy. But it has to be fulfilling the feminine desire for intimacy. Without the feminine desire for intimacy, then the man can only be a taker. So that's not holy. It's the opposite of holy. And we don't end up building the dirab tachtenim. But when there's feminine desire for intimacy, now the man can be a giver. <laughs> now he finds the godliness in his home, the Kedesh HaKadoshim in his home. And through his physical union with his wife, he becomes cleansed of that which is mundane and secular. And he becomes elevated into something holy. So it is so important for women to understand um, that their desire is not something to run from. It is something to cultivate carefully and obviously with the utmost awe and respect of the power of, 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 this, of this tool. And again, to do it in the most modest way we're not talking about being exhibitionistic and advertising to the world that you have a healthy, intimate life with your husband. That's, that's actually a, uh, an oxymoron because you can't advertise intimacy or else it's not intimate anymore. We're talking about in the privacy of your relationship to get in touch with your desire for physical bonding and emotional and social and every other level but means the physicality of it and don't be afraid of the physicality of it and don't say oh well you know eventually we're going to have to deal with the physicality so let's just get it over with no 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 <laughs> this is indispensable to the and Hashem says Chaviven Olai this is more precious to me than all the other donations. In other words, what are the donations that we bring to the Mishkan in our lives? We sanctify our, our jobs and our, and our wealth by giving tzedakah and by, by having a Jewish home and by keeping kosher and by paying tuition. And there's so many ways that we try to refine the physical world around us. But what is the most chavi, what's the most precious way? that we allow the Shekhinah into the physical world through marital intimacy, specifically as a masculine response to a feminine desire. As a masculine response to a feminine desire.
I shouldn't tell you even what it says in the Luach HaTikon of Perek Zion of Tanya when it's talking about not getting wrapped up in Klipas Neiga. If you get too excited about permissible things that are uh, neutral, you know, they'll become, they get dragged down and they drag you down. And uh, over there in the Luach HaTikon, it mentions even when a man is intimate with his wife and it's a time when she's permissible to him and it's his, it's his wife, it's a permissible relationship and it's a permissible time. But if he does it with animalistic lust, then he degrades the whole experience. Pretty scary. However, <laughs> if he does it, it doesn't say this in Lucha Tikkun, but it follows that if he does it as a response to her desire, and now he has a mitzvah to not withhold from her her desire, and by the way, these things aren't binary, it's not an on-off switch. There are degrees to desire. It's not either she wants it or she doesn't. There are degrees to desire. So the more she desires, the more his intense desire to respond to that becomes amplified. <sighs> yes, women, when I speak to the men, Again, I want to repeat myself. I am going to remind them of all the things they need to do to make their wives feel safe and cherished so that they can be vulnerable, vulnerable enough to feel that desire. Please know that when I speak to the men, I will make sure that they know how important it is that a woman cannot desire receiving when she doesn't feel safe. And when she doesn't feel honored. So we will definitely remind the men of that over and over again. But as for the message that I have to the, to the women, it is that you have a unique power of, of Maras at Tzoyvais. And uh, it's, it's, it's an absolute anomaly. It's like nothing else. It's really special. It's unique. The Rebbe also mentions how Marasat Tzayvais is, I mentioned, related to the word Tzivais, Hashem, because they, Tzivais means the legions. They, they gave birth to legions of Jews. But uh, specifically, the Rebbe there brings out the idea of uh, Tzivais Hashem being soldiers. Legions means legions of an army. Uh, it's the idea of Kabbalah's oil. Kabbalah's oil, Malchus Shemayim. It's, it's so counterintuitive. But Kabbalah's oil is not to suppress your desire for physical marital intimacy. <laughs> Kabbalah's oil, Maras HaTzavis, Malashin Tzivas Hashem, your Kabbalah's oil is to get in touch with that desire. So it's, 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 it's absolutely astounding, this idea that you may think, what is Kabbalah soil? What is being a balabas of zich and taking control of my desires? And I'm not going to speak Lashon Hara and I'm not going to eat dessert and I'm not going to be excited about 
marital intimacy. But that would be a big mistake. I mean, you could not speak the Lushan Hoda and you could not eat the dessert. But um, your Kabbalist oil is to channel this desire and incorporate it in the Mishkan, in the Dirab Tachtenim that we're building. And, and I want to clarify something because I, 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 I am sensitive to a lot of the issues that are out there. I believe, at least I hope I'm sensitive. And I, and I know that sometimes women feel less than respected and they feel pressure. And when I say Kabbalist oil, I don't mean to force yourself to do something that doesn't feel right. I'm going to repeat that because I think it's very important. I don't mean to force yourself to do something that you're not comfortable with, that doesn't feel respectful, that doesn't feel safe. God forbid. What I mean is that when you're examining this aspect of your personality and you're wondering what to do with it, you got married and now you have this whole aspect of your humanity that you now have to deal with, right? So when you're looking at it, you're wondering, well, how should I, I'm a spiritual person. I'm, I'm speaking to people who are spiritual seekers, okay? I'm assuming whoever's listening to this, you're watching a, a class about a mimer, okay? You're a spiritual person. You want to be more refined. You want to be more spiritual. Okay, so that's the premise that I have. That's what I understand you want. And so you're, you're looking at yourself now as, as newly married or you've been married for a while and you're asking yourself, what should I do with this part of me? Is it a necessary evil that I just have to give into and it's just something that eventually, you know, you have to just do? And if I want to be a really spiritual person, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll be above those things. A really spiritual person, you're more refined, you're more transcendent, you're not into ice cream, you're not into tivas, you're not into this. No, that would be incorrect. Kabbalah's oil is, and again, I do not mean to put yourself in a situation that does not feel respectful or safe. But what I mean is when you're looking at this part of your, of your nefesh and you're wondering what to do with it, your Kabbalah's oil is not to suppress it. Your Kabbalah's oil is to express it in a respectful way, in a modest way, in an idle way, but to express your desire for your husband so that he can be a giver. He can't give you something that you don't want. Nobody can give you something that you don't want. So I'm not telling you to want something that you don't want, <laughs> but if you really do want and you're afraid of it or you're confused about it or you don't know what to do with it or you spent your adolescence sort of trying to suppress that part of yourself, which is basically what most of us do. Um, I want you to understand that you're, you're now uh, in possession of a powerful tool that is essential to Hashem having his dwelling place in this physical world. And, uh, you know, do it for Hashem. <laughs> do it so the Shrina can be at home. The Shekinah will be happy. Your kids will be happy. There's, there's nothing more vibrant 
and 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 alive and and pleasant than a home where there is good physical intimacy between husband and wife but but in order for it to be good and holy it's predicated upon the the macabre having a desire we may do a part three let's see okay good night